It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. And here they are Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Good planets are in the main. Right. Let's just listen to the music for a little bit. Here we go. Ah, we'll fade out uh, because there are. Take us on out. That's right. (laughs) Let's let's play it out. We'll do it live. All right. Well, we (laughs) one more time. (laughs) We are doing it live. Welcome to yeah, oh yeah. We do it live every week. In fact, we I kind of surprised our 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 first guest today, the venerable uh, Douglas. Tallamy, uh, who uh, is, uh, in fact, the, the Douglas W. Tallamy, the author of this book and of that book, and a couple more. And um, uh, we're very excited to have him back on the show. And he had his uh, stocking cap on. I'm busting him now. And uh, uh, and he said, uh, this isn't going to be on video, is it? And I said, um, yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, so he, uh, he went and... Uh, tidied up a little bit. And I said, no, I don't want people to tidy up. I want them to wear their stocking caps and stuff like that. And I want, I want Sunday morning. Exactly. And I want dogs barking in the background. I think we might have a bird in the background for our guests at the, in the 10 o'clock hour, which should be kind of fun. Um, uh, And uh, in fact, I'm so glad you folks are watching today. Um, What a twofer we have today and it follows up a great show we had last week with uh kelsey and tristan shaw from possibility place nursery in Monee, mm-hmm. illinois uh if you haven't seen that video you need to go to our youtube page and uh and check it out because uh we did we did the first hour and realized there uh, was a ton more to talk about and so yeah. we just said hey would you stay another half hour so we did oh, not quite a 90 minute but probably an 80 75 minute conversation with these guys about all things natives uh all things native and they they mm-hmm. were wonderful and uh go back and, and take a look at it if you haven't and that is a great lead into today's show because uh, as we said we start with doug tallamy from the university of delaware who's the author of a number of books about restoring nature, preserving nature, uh, in, and uh, his, he's also created something called Homegrown National Park. We're going to talk about that, um, and and who knows what else? Who knows where the conversation will go? But uh, Doug is always so generous with his time. We're very pleased to have yeah. him here. And then in got a- what? A problem. Oh, I was just seeing we have a comment from Zan saying she's not seeing us on YouTube this morning, but uh, try hitting refresh, Zan, uh, Alexandra. Uh, yeah, uh, 
Um, now, now you got me worried about it. That's a, uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's there. I'll tell you what, why don't you refresh YouTube Peggy and make sure we're up there. But, uh, it, 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 in the second hour, um, we go from the broader picture to the smaller picture, although it's a very important picture in Chicago. Um, and, uh, Peggy and I, for the last several years have talked, uh, about what's going on in Jackson Park uh, with the building of the Obama Presidential Center, uh, the controversy involving that, whether it should have been in Jackson Park. Uh, Nancy Bender says she's seeing us on YouTube, so is yep. Snap, Snappy J. Well. Dog. So, Zan, it's you, just letting you know. Um, and uh, But uh, the there's the Obama Center, and then there began to be um, rumors that Two golf courses on the south side, South uh, Jackson Park Golf Course and South Shore Golf Course, would be combined uh, into a PGA-caliber course uh, designed by Tiger Woods and his design team, TGR. And, um, and now that has resurfaced. That went away for a while, and folks wondered what had happened to that. Now that has resurfaced. Here's the problem with that. With the Obama Center... Uh, being in Jackson Park, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, and it's what I put in my Facebook post yesterday to preview the show, that when the Obamas came to town, they said, hey, we're going to put the presidential center there. Were you aware that 800 trees, many of them mature, were going to be cut down to to put up this center in Jackson Park? Uh, I'll bet a lot of people really only had the vaguest heritage trees. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get to that too. Yeah. What is a heritage tree? That is, uh, I was talking to the arborist who will be on the show with us in the second hour, uh, David J. Nowak. He spells it the same way as I do, but he pronounces it with a W, Nowak, and no relation. Um, and uh, he's out of uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, he will be with us, and so will Jeanette Hoyt. Uh, who started an organization called Save Jackson Park. And right now she's fighting to uh, preserve as many trees as possible in Jackson Park, considering that probably, well, already hundreds have been cut down uh, and perhaps a couple of thousand more if this golf course is built. The South Shore Sanctuary would be obliterated. Um, there's, there's a lot going on. And we're going to talk about where that stands and what folks have been doing to, well, a lot of folks just don't want it to happen. Uh, and I can yeah. understand why. Um, I, for one, and I, I will admit it, I didn't want the Obama Center to go in Jackson Park. But uh, I'm not the uh, 44th president of the United yeah. States. Um, and they muscled their way in and they got it. They could have done a lot more good probably in Washington Park. And uh, and now we've lost. Um, we'll lose probably 800 trees uh, to to that uh, institution. Um, it will take decades to restore the carbon uh, sequestration uh, that, that that we're losing. And who knows uh, about the water? And uh, certainly, uh, air pollution benefits of trees are now lost. And, and the canopy over Lakeshore. Canopy, Next to Lakeshore Drive is uh, gone. And the birds All who right. are mi migrating, who might have migrated to those trees for um, hundreds of years, not so much or, anymore. Or food. Yeah, right. So 
This is what we're going to be talking about uh, in the second hour. So uh, I think you want to stick around for that. Bef- now, and before we get to that, uh, one more quick thing, um, because uh, I-, I want to show you that there was a gnome sighting. Um, just Uh-oh. yep, there was. It, well, it is spring. It is spring. Yeah, it, the gnomes I, come out, and, and the gnomes yeah. come out. And uh, this was in the trail site uh, in the Forest Preserve District of Cook County, and. Uh, I went out there last Sunday. It was a little mucky last Sunday, but not a bad day. I mean, it had been raining for several days. So we've gotten a fair amount of rain recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the middle of the woods, we found gnomes. Look at that, folks. Um, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, and actually... Like we should be playing like Middle Earth music or something. I, I, I don't have any Middle Earth music uh, available but uh, if that isn't the cutest darn thing you've ever seen <laughs> in your life, uh, and um, on the right side, that is uh, uh, my Kathleen, Kathleen Thompson, who is our webmaster and who's upstairs now tending the feed at MikeNovak.net of, of the stream of the show. On the left there is Mac Austin. Uh, she is the senior amateur nature correspondent for the Mike Novak show, but she also happens to be um, a, an Illinois master naturalist. So uh, th- we had a great time and, and I just couldn't resist showing that photograph. So, uh, <laughs> all right. That's all the time we have. Good night, everybody. Oh, <laughs> the gnomes are here. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's bring in our guest. Uh, there he is, Doug Tallamy. And let's make sure that, uh, your mic is on. I mean, I, I set these things up and sometimes, yeah, it worked. There we are. Uh, Doug, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Your introduction has thoroughly depressed me. So, uh, Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> well, well, I didn't want to drag you into that conversation, but I had to preview um, what we'll be talking about in the second hour, but it's, it is so important. All right. The last time you were here, uh, which was in January, and thank you so much uh, for mm-hmm. coming back uh, so quickly uh, to be on the program. Um, basically, Doug said it's 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 up to my wife because she holds the uh, calendar uh, of of places that you speak, and you and you speak like seventeen times a week. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it does. But the last time you were here, we were talking. One of the things we talked about was Bell Bowl Prairie out at Rockford International, Chicago Rockford International Airport uh, in Rockford, Illinois. Since that time. Uh, Which is still an issue, by the way. It's Well, that's the point I'm going to make is it's still an issue. But what has happened is they've postponed any plowing to June 1st. Um, in the meantime, apparently they're going to send people out into the prairie to see if they can find some of those endangered species, notably the rusty patch bumblebee. Um, mm. And, I, you know, will they be able to track track one down, spot one before June 1st? I think that you're an entomologist. Uh, do you know much about the rusty patch? Well, they'd have a chance of seeing a queen. The queens are out establishing the colonies very soon. Mm-hmm. You know, the rusty patch used to be one of the most common bumblebees in, in the country. Uh, but now it's just about gone, and that's, that's part of this massive defaunation that we're seeing. They're not extinct, but they're functionally extinct. So, 
really yeah, maybe you, we can you, bring... you, you would go that far to say they're functionally extinct sure if you've got you know one percent of what used to be here they're certainly not performing the same role they used to mm-hmm. what does functionally extinct mean uh, it means they're not performing the ecological role that they used to perform in our our uh, in our ecosystems. So bumblebees are are, are generalist, long tongue pollinators. A lot of deep corolla plants depend on them. So if you take, let's say, you have a population of a million and you make it 100, you've got a lot of plants that aren't going to get pollinated. So that's what I mean by finding they're not performing their their function. Okay. It's and- not that it's. If, if the rusty patch was always very rare, you wouldn't notice the functional difference. But the fact that it was one of the most common species, and all of a sudden now it's just gone, that's that's the real hit. And the question I have to ask you, and I think I know the answer to, is how did that happen? Do we really know why it it disappeared? Uh, a bumblebee that was so ubiquitous is now suddenly nowhere to be found? Uh, we are pretty sure we know. Um, it, you know, has, it's very tough to prove these things, but um, we have commercial bumblebees that uh, are used in greenhouses for tomato pollination and a few other things that were brought over from Europe. And along with those bumblebees came a disease. Those bumblebees don't stay in the greenhouse. They left. They spread the disease around. And there's one group of bumblebees in the U.S. that's apparently very susceptible to it. The rusty patch belongs to that group. So it's probably been knocked down by disease as opposed to anything oh. else. And there's uh, Bombus pensylvanicus is another member of that group um, disappearing. So there's three or four species that are all in trouble because of the introduction of that disease. At least that's the major hypothesis. Uh, there are some people who would have you believe it has, it has primarily to do with uh, pesticides, uh, uh, primarily insecticides. What would you say about that? Well, insecticides are hammering our native bees for sure. Uh, but the fact that um, these particular species are, are disappearing as opposed to other species that are not makes me think it's not a general factor like, like pesticides. And, and we're really talking about neonicotinoids yeah. that are, you know, I was, I was behind the eight ball on neonicotinoids. I didn't realize how harmful they were. They are 7,000 times more toxic to insects and birds than DDT was. And, and yet we use them all the time and we use them preventively. We don't, we coat the seeds with them, whether or not you have a, an insect problem. So you're plant, you're, you're putting this stuff in the environment. Then when the food germinates, it takes up 5% of the neonicotinoid. 95% gets washed off into the water table or it's blown away on, on dust. Wow. Uh, and that, so it's leaving the field, in other words. That's what's hammering our pollinators and grasshoppers. Uh, lots of things are disappearing. Uh, it really looks like that's, that's a major cause. The, the, the thing that drives me crazy is if you look at the yield of a, a crop that has neonicotinoid seed conings versus the yield of the same crop without seed conings, there's no improvement in yield. You're not, you're not gaining anything. So why do we do this? Because nobody's thinking seriously. The, the, the pesticide companies say, here it is, it's great, and, and we use it without thinking about the consequences. The consequences are turning out to be really serious. Europe has banned them. Right, and, and I, I didn't think we were going to get into it this quickly, but that's one of the things I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about today. If you go to my blog, we have several um, links 
to stories about neonicotinoids. Uh, you said something uh, very interesting just now about uh, DDT and, and how much more toxic it is than DDT. And I seven thousand times more. You said, wow. yeah, un- unbelievable. Um, Twenty twenty two. And uh, um, I talked to an entomologist years ago, who said that we stopped. It was this person's contention that we stopped using DDT not because of the damage it was causing to birds, but because it stopped working, that insects were adapting to DDT. Uh, and you're nodding. Yeah. Um, now, at the same time, Rachel Carson wrote her book and got a lot of, of public support. And a lot of flat and, and was just pilloried by the industry as well. Yes, that, that is true. But resistance started showing up at exactly then. And the pesticide company says, well, we're not going to fight it anymore because it's not working very well. So they, they switched to new classes of pesticides, but yeah, the advent of resistance, they, who knows, they'd probably still be fighting it. I don't know. Um, And so why is it we cannot get our EPA to make a determination on this? Uh, Is it the pressure from the, uh, the big uh, chemical companies? That's the only thing we can conclude. The evidence against neonicotinoids is, is overwhelming. So the fact that they're not, they're not behaving as if they believe that stuff makes me think that, that there's an awful lot of, of uh, lobbying pressure. Um, yeah, there was one, one of the articles, uh, there's a whole bunch of different articles, and I think it was one by the NRDC quoted somebody. Oh, and there goes Peggy. There, oh, well, uh, she'll she'll log back on in. Uh, oh, there you I are. Just, that's the fourth time I've been bounced out of VMix so far this morning. Okay, all right. The you were saying so anyways, that, the, the NRDC was was quoting somebody who said the um, someone at the EPA saying, "Well, the laws in Europe are much different of how they're written of of what can be controlled versus here." Well, maybe so, but but it had to do with, well, it can be banned in Europe, but not here because of the laws. It's what should be done. Mm -hmm. You know, if the law doesn't work, change the law, but don't persist with something that's deadly just because the law is not written. Right. I mean, that's, that's not a good reason. Well, and, and I don't understand how an organization of how many different countries can come together and yet, our country, which just has one legislative body to deal with, can't get it done. Um, and, and you know, if I had to guess, it's because our legislators are in the hip pocket yeah. of, of, of big ag and big chem. Um, you know, that yeah, would be my cynical. Say, yeah, you can't just say, make it go away because of the lobbyists. Most so, likely. so what is the effect of this? Uh, as, you know, you're the scientist, not the politician. Um, you know, you mentioned how, how how toxic neonicotinoids are. What other insects are they affecting? Obviously, uh, what are the primary insects that that suffer from? Well, you know, we're we're fighting global insect declines, and and the causes have been described as death by a thousand cuts. So the misuse and overuse of pesticides is listed as one of those impacts. But this is still new stuff and, and designing experiments that would look at 
what the, the impact of, of neonicotinoids blowing on dust from Idaho and landing in what's east of Idaho, Montana or something, and, and wiping out grasshoppers. Those studies have not been done. But we do know the grasshoppers are disappearing. So why? You know, what you go to places that are not right next to agriculture. Why are they disappearing? And somebody would say, well, it's climate change. Uh, climate is changing for sure. We've got, we've got, you know, serious effects. But there are lots of places where the climate just hasn't changed that much in order to, to um, account for these drastic reductions in, in uh, insect populations. The grasshoppers in, in southern Delaware, for example, have crashed. And we noticed it by people studying kestrels. Mm. The kestrels, of course, uh, are they, they hunt mice, but they feed their young an awful lot of grasshoppers. And the, the particularly the springtime grasshoppers just aren't there anymore. I don't, I don't see them at my house. There used to be a green species that was very common. I'm not using any neonix, but who around me is? So I don't know. It's a hypothesis. It needs to be tested. Uh, and um, I'm sure there's somebody starting to, to work on those things. But, but when you read how pervasive it is, if I buy a package of corn uh, to just plant in my home garden back here, it's all coated with neonics. You know, I don't know that I can buy it without it on there. We're just using it everywhere. And that adds up. So that uh that that's terrifying i mean i mean i don't we have organic we have organic varieties right are you talking about farmers in general who um are led to purchase seed for the best crop that will and the most productive crop that will come up yeah i'm talking about the the tens of that well the millions of acres of corn and soybeans that we have okay yeah the yeah. two big wheat same thing we're coating these seeds, but you don't get any, you don't get any yield increase. It's just that, you know, the seed company says, here, we've got this brand new product. It's cheap. So it's not going to cost you much more and you get protection even if you don't need it. So of course the grower says, oh, okay, I'll do it. Well, they're, they're like the general public, they're susceptible to advertising and marketing. Right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting. You were talking about how new. Oh, go. say it's not toxic to humans. Okay, maybe yes, maybe no. But there are other things on the planet besides humans that we need to think about. Okay, I, I see. I was talking, and it sort of cut you out at the beginning. So you're saying uh-huh. their argument is that these uh, these pesticides are not toxic to humans, right? One other thing uh, is you mentioned how new this is. Um, on this show a number of years ago, uh, Dr. May Berenbaum, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, and I love uh, Dr. May. Uh, she's wonderful, and she's uh, from the University of Illinois. And one of the things she said to me that, that stuck with me was that in the whole evolution of these insects uh, over millennia, and you talk about the evolution uh, in, in, in relation to plant material that, you know, they co-evolve, co-evolve with. But in her case, she said, nothing in their uh, thousands of years of evolution have prepared them for the chemical onslaught of the late 20th century uh, and now early 21st century. And I'm sure you would agree with that. Absolutely. Just let me give a shout out to May. Of course, uh, Neil Wilson died the day after Christmas, terrible loss. 
um, and and clearly the most impactful entomologist that we've we've had. Well, May Birnbaum is the second most impactful, and she's still going strong. She's she's just had a very long and highly productive career. I asked her once, "How how do you do it, May?" And she says, "I don't sleep." <laughs> And I believe it. I don't think she sleeps at all. <laughs> at a conference once, okay, I have to tell you um, that uh, some it was it was like fifteen years ago. I think um, I was at a conference where she we were both speaking, and um, we we stood in line uh, for lunch, and I we just started talking, and um, at the point that point it was just as um, uh, colony collapse disorder was becoming known. Um, and, and this is where the honeybees were disappearing. And that's, you know, over the years, I think we've learned that it has to do with at least half a dozen things. Um, and as you talked about, uh, uh, infection um, is a key one. But some people were saying, well, it's the cell phone signals that are doing that. And uh, and she said that, yeah, the cell phone, yeah, well, that that comes right under bee rapture. Uh, in my book about why they're disappearing. And, and, and that endeared me to her forever uh, when, when she said that. I, I get that question at talks very often. What do you think about cell phones? All I say is I have no data on that, you know, <laughs> which is true. I have no data on it. So. Well, and it's, you know, it's the one uh, and that you also get is probably chemtrails. I'm sure it's the chemtrails that are, that are doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah. there's... or the UFOs. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, it's because we have we have enough real serious threats that are measurable that we know are there. We don't have to invent other ones to explain this. Right. Uh, yeah. We, we, we invent ones that are convenient to the story. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, we know that uh, neonicotinoids are not uh, um, uh, an improvement. They're not helping the crops. They're killing our insects. For goodness sake, folks, can we go in a different direction, really? Uh, that would be a, a good thing. Uh, I want to pop up something that um, I've been holding on to now for two and a half months uh, because uh, I wanted to uh, show this. Uh, during the show, you had sent this to me when before we talked in, in January, and it's this wonderful photo. Mm, that's fabulous! Isn't that great? Uh, that's just amazing. Explain to us, Doug, what are we seeing here? What's this an example of? You're seeing the end product of two months of me standing behind my camera in my front room. <laughs> 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 And it is carrying an acorn away from uh, one of my oak trees. And the story is that, of course, they, they depend on these acorns for food during the wintertime. And it turns out the jays are the primary disperser of oak acorns. There are a lot of things that eat those acorns, but they're eating them. They are not, not dispersing. So jays, uh, you know, they want to eat them too, but they, they fly up to a mile from the parent tree. And then they, they tap that acorn below the surface of the soil. And the object is they're going to go back in the winter and, and find it to eat. But for every four acorns they bury, they only remember where one is. So for every four acorns they bury, they've planted three oak trees. And because they're flying up to a mile from the tree, they're moving those acorns farther than anything else. 
And that allows oaks to to disperse themselves farther and faster than any other deciduous tree in, in the, the world, really. And it's not just blue jays that do this. It's all the jays. The jays, the jay lineage and the oak lineage evolved together in Southeast Asia 65 million years ago. So they've had a long time to get their act together, and they're very good at, at interacting uh-huh. with each other. The, the, and that's just amazing. Uh, when we were talking about Oaks, uh, when you were uh, back on the show in January and, and about how widely dispersed they are and how many species, that has something to do with it. Uh, what, what were some of the other reasons that uh, oaks uh, are such an important species or genus? Sorry. Well, you've named a couple of them. They're, they're old. They've been around a long time. They are dispersed across all of Eurasia and North America and down into Central America and even a little bit into Colombia. So they have a very broad geographic distribution. There are 91 species in North America, 200 and something, 265 species in Mexico alone. Mexico is just a hotbed. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think 435 species uh, worldwide. So that makes it a large genus for a deciduous tree. Um, They're very closely related to each other, which means uh, they hybridize within within, uh, taxonomic sections. They hybridize readily. Uh, so it's very common to find oak hybrids growing in the forest. And many of those hybrids are viable. And this, this hybridization uh, is one of the factors that has led to as much speciation as we, we see. Uh, and, they're, and they're often fairly common. Uh, in other words, they're fairly densely plant or, or growing together. And the reason I can say that is they're wind pollinated. You got to have a buddy next to you if you're going to be wind pollinated or it's not going to work. So all those factors together have made them um, real prime targets for for uh, particularly caterpillars that use oaks to, uh, for their growth and, and reproduction. And that, of course, makes it wonderful for the birds because those are the caterpillars that the birds are rearing their young on. So that's why I call oaks keystone plants. They're producing more caterpillar food for our birds than any other plant genus. And uh, a, a, an ecosystem that where oaks belong that doesn't have them is going to have that's a real threat to the food web because they produce most of the food that's out there. And I'm happy to hear that your book, The Nature of Oaks, which we talked about on the show last uh, time, is doing very well. You said you don't even have a copy at home right now because they're selling so well. Well, I, I had uh, I had a talk on Saturday and a talk on Sunday last weekend, and I had I had a thousand dollars worth of books in my my car. And I, I sold them all. So, I, and that was too bad because I had a talk on Tuesday. I was supposed to take books to, and I didn't have any to, to take. So, I'll have to buy. <laughs> Come on! I can't believe um, that 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 Timber Press can't keep you stocked with with books. I, I have to order them. They're not just going to send them. <laughs> I, you know, I do, usually don't sell that fast. So, uh, you know, I think people are excited to start going yeah. in person to talk again and. They've gone two years without doing that, and and so a lot of people are buying books. And that's good and, for you, and it's good for oaks, and it's good for the planet, really. Yeah, good for Timber Press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> yeah, and it's it. I think it's also more people becoming aware and realizing, and wanting yes. to learn. Yes. You know, I often get the question: Are, are you hopeful? Uh, and I am for that that very reason. You wanted to talk about homegrown national park. This is a perfect time to do it. Mm-hmm. The the both the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis 
um, there are two major crises on, on planet Earth, and we can address both of them by putting plants in the ground. And if we choose the right plants, we can really help the biodiversity crisis. But when I say we, I'm talking about everybody. These are, these are huge problems, but they do have grassroots solutions. And this is where the, the homegrown national park concept comes in. If everybody influences the piece of the earth that they interact with, if you own property, you know, that's certainly where you, you start. And if you don't own property, help somebody who does. Make that property a functional part of your local ecosystem by putting the right plants in there. You do that, you're a member of Homegrown National Park. You are, you are changing our, our sterile, human-dominated landscapes into, uh, into natural ecosystems. You're going to be part of the solution of, of encouraging people to live with nature instead of separate from it. We're, we're going to coexist with it. Uh, and that is, that's why I'm, I'm encouraged because when people hear that they can actually be an important part of the solution, they get excited about that. You know, instead of just wringing our hands, what can we do? We'll give up. We can do plenty of things. And, and they get excited about that. So that's, there are a lot of people in this planet. And if we all did our part, the problems would, would not disappear, but they would sure be uh, much more solvable. Well, uh, Doug, we're getting a ton of responses here. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, Shelly just uh, uh, typed in, I'm an official member of Homegrown mm-hmm. National Park, and you can go to... My, my yard's up there, too. <laughs> home, homegrownnationalpark.org uh, and find out more. We're going we're gonna to talk more about that. We need to take a, a short break here, and I want to get uh, to, uh, to more of these comments, um, uh, including... Uh, from Greg, who says, Doug, why not sell that gorgeous photograph in outdoor pillows? Proceeds can go towards your foundation, Homegrown National Park. I don't want to talk about pillows. (laughs) All right. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're we're talking to educator and author Doug Tallamy. Um, You can pick up uh, any of his books. Uh, Go to homegrownnationalpark.org and and look for Talamy's Hub that mm-hmm. is and and there's uh, the product placement from uh, Peggy Malecki there. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around and please send us your comments. We really want to hear what you have to say. So this is a very simple par meter. And I'm going to measure the par value of this fluorescent light, which was purchased at a Home Depot specifically for growing um, and advertised as a seed starting light. Minimally for par value for just seed starting. So just to the seedling stage, you want a minimum of 80, really. Um, 75 to 100 will do the trick. I would say 100 to 150 is far better. Um, But right now, at about a foot above the plants, uh, we're getting 49. So now we're going to, let me plug in our happy leaf light. This is our 17 inch Procyon 2.0. And it's a really great all around light. Um, They also come in 33 inch lights, which I have set up here, which is where I'm going to actually put my seed flat. Let's get it about a foot over. I'm getting a value of 335.
from spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. The Arctic is warming almost three times faster than the rest of the planet. Changing the Arctic ecosystems forever. Causing destruction around the planet. Once Arctic ice melts, we can't get it back. We can't negotiate the melting point of ice. World leaders must take immediate action to keep 1.5 alive. And one of the ways you do that is to plant oaks and to plant natives. And There we go. There's the other product. Oh, you, you found it. Hey, you, you might want to sell that to Doug. He could use that right now. I mean, you, you could just mark it up a little bit. I bet you could make a killing on that book right now. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We are so honored to be talking once again um, to author and educator Doug Tallamy. And um, uh, we're going to get into a homegrown national park in just a second. I, I have to call attention to that uh, public service announcement I just ran. Isn't that, uh, wasn't that remarkable, Doug, that was all done sort of a, it's not claymation, I think it's icemation. I, I don't know why. I am so moved by the image of that bear moving across the screen like that and slowly melting as it does. Um, yeah, right. yeah it, it, it's quite moving. Um, I was talking about some of the um, messages we're getting in uh, from our, the folks who are watching the live stream. Uh, Sarah Batka from Illinois Extension uh, says, yes, she also loves May Berenbaum. She's worked with May Berenbaum. If you're in Illinois Extension, you've worked with uh, May Berenbaum. Um, and she says, and B-Spotter, go to bspotter.org. Uh, you can learn more about uh, uh, bees and doing their, their bee blitz, which I believe is coming up in June. So that would be their eighth annual bee blitz. Uh, so that's... Uh, that's one thing you, you can take advantage of. Um, I'm interested in this uh, dryad tree is, is, is the handle that's being used here, who wrote, I specialize in non-pesticide controls 15 years after I stopped registering for pesticide license for my 20-year IPM business. I only used caution label and integrated beneficial conservation release only for sterile landscapes. It's a great idea that does not sell. The mental dependency on chemicals, money, and lack of true balance systems is a huge impediment. Very little information to be found. We can find the pest uh, drama and pop-up chem sales in one stroke. I won't stop, but I'm exhausted and heartbroken. I thought it's what all the hashtags wanted. Articles, lectures, daring venues, slow but steady. So, um there's somebody who's fighting the fight and having a hard time. 
Well, it's fighting the fight against some very powerful interests. You know, marketing works. So when you turn on the TV and it tells you that your your lawn has to be perfect with no no dandelions or no clover, uh, and you just put this product on, what they don't tell you is that there's there's a herbicide in the product that that will kill all broadleaves. Um, your lawn has to be perfectly green, uh, and and you know your your pest control company will come and spray on the calendar just in case something comes. Or we're all hiring Mosquito Joe to go around and, and fog. Mosquito Joe says it only kills mosquitoes, when in fact it kills all the insects it comes in contact with. So we're wiping out anything that, that might survive in our, our yeah. yard. As and, and I was going to say, and people are believing that all insects are bad. All insects are bad. They're also believing that Mosquito Joe controls mosquitoes. When in fact it doesn't, you don't control mosquitoes in the in the adult stage. You control them in the larval stage. Exactly, and you know, and and the problem is there's just these mosquito abatement districts that often uh, have a lot more control over what's happening in your yard than you do. I mean, you can't you can you can complain, but you're going to be end up complaining after the fact after they've sprayed. Right. Or they'll they'll turn off their foggers. They're going down the street when they pass your house, and then turn it back on. But it just floats. It covers the whole area. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I you know, <laughs> I often wonder if we're supposed to be an intelligent species, but we are so easily led by the nose, um, and the best leaders are the ones that win. So, yeah. so we got to get better at at, at marketing. Um, environmentally friendly ways of, of existing on this planet. We, we've got to get better at that or we're going to stop existing. I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. Well, yeah, I think there, there is a danger of that and I don't think we understand it. And that's, that is a danger that is, uh, it goes side by side with climate change. Um, it's not exactly the same thing. I mean, but it, it is, I mean, we're going to lose insects because of climate change. We're going to lose them for other reasons. Uh, and then it's all, Again, the rivet, the the one rivet that comes out of the plane and it all crashes to the ground. Uh, we got uh, another comment from uh, Scott Jamison, who works for Bartlett Tree Experts, uh, as you know, is uh, the major sponsor of our program. And he said uh, he loves your book, was a great read by the pool in Hawaii. Would be nice, wouldn't it, uh, Scott? Uh, but he also says um, if oaks can hybridize so well, why are we seeing such low natural regeneration in our area? And, and I assume you mean the, this part of the Midwest, Scott. Uh, and he, he says also, by the way, there was a reason oaks were selected for the 9-11 National Memorial. Um, do you know anything about the regeneration uh, issues, uh, Doug? I do. Um, the regeneration is poor all over well, it's, it's, it's poor in most places of the country, but certainly all over the East. And it's because we have too many deer. Every little white oak or oak that pops its head above the ground is eaten by a deer. Uh, but they don't eat the invasive plants. They don't eat the, the bush honeysuckle or the autumn olive or the barberry or the burning bush. Uh, so the, the invasive plant problem is, is exacerbated by too many deer. And it suppresses the, the regeneration of our forest by not just from oaks, but all kinds of, of native trees that are trying to grow up. But the deer, they're hungry. It's not their fault. But they eat every last one of them. So that's why we don't have enough oaks coming. Uh, and I'm not surprised by that either, because that is, again, 
uh, an indication of our misplaced priorities. Uh, people cannot stand uh, to cull Bambi, and yet Bambi is causing so much trouble, uh, so, causing so many problems, uh, and not the least of which is uh, the spread of uh, ticks and Lyme disease, yeah. um, in and addition. It, yeah, pick- and the unbalance of keeping the deer but getting rid of the coyote and the other predators. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Offsetting and, the balance. And, and let's not even get into what they're doing to wolves out in the West. I mean, that is, it's horrific. It's the, the people and, and it's, uh, you know, they claim, well, they're, they're, they're killing our cattle. And you look at the numbers, the, the, the cattle kill is insignificant. Absolutely. It's just a bloodlust for predators in our landscape, which we've always had. We've as a species, our own species has a bloodlust against other predators. Um, You know, there's actually some, Good news there. I heard this the other day. The Mexican wolf in, in uh, um, I guess it's Arizona, but mostly New Mexico. Uh, I don't know what group it is, but uh, they are doing exactly what I, I wish the uh, Endangered Species Act would do, and that is they're paying ranchers not to replace any cattle that are killed, but they're paying them simply to allow the wolves to exist on their property. So even if there's no kill at all, you as a rancher get get compensated for allowing the wolves there. And it's enormously successful. The ranchers like, great, you know, and they, they're letting the wolves go. And occasionally they'll take take a cow, but not much, as you say. But they're all they're getting paid to be good stewards of the Mexican wolf. Well that's too so rational. That. <laughs> that's too rational for us. Then that that's it's always good to hear it works once in a while. Yeah. Um all right. Uh let's talk a little bit um uh, let's get back into uh, the uh, homegrown national park. And, and then I want to get to the tree planting tree issue before we uh, finish this. But um, it's, it is such a great idea. And, and in the article in natural awakenings, Chicago, uh, Peggy, you may hold, do a product placement if, if you want. Uh, it's a lovely article. Uh, and uh, uh, you talk about wild spaces and basically, uh, a wild space can be pretty much anywhere. It can be whatever you need it to be, as long as you have, if you're paying attention at all to nature. A wild space can be a flower pot on your balcony if you're in an apartment, because uh, the the native bees will use it if it's the right plant. If you put if you put milkweeds in there, the monarchs will use it. And we'd like you to go bigger than a flower pot, but um, any space works. When we, when we thought about the idea of Homegrown National Park, I was thinking about reducing the area that we have in lawn because we've got you know, over 40 million acres in lawn, which is the size of, of New England. Uh, but we're going beyond that now because lawn is the, ho- the low-hanging fruit. It's easy to reduce that area. But let's say you've got a woodlot in, on your property. There's an enormous amount of acreage in, in woodlots that private homeowners own. That's got to be part of Homegrown National Park as well. Mm-hmm. And we can't leave agriculture. You know, so much of our land is in agriculture. So let's restore the, the native plants on the edges of the, the fields that is now lawn. They were all killed with, with Roundup and replaced with lawn. Let's put those plants back. That's where the milkweeds and the asters and the, uh, the jewelweeds and all the other native plants that supported our native bees and the monarch and everything else used to be. We coexisted with agriculture and nature for you know more than a hundred years. We can do that again. Let's put back the hedgerows. Let's put back or put in for the first time 
prairie strips that will intercept uh, topsoil before it leaves the the farm and um, nutrients and provide uh, you know, a lot of uh, resources for for pollinators. All of those spaces on our big farms can be included in homegrown national park rangeland. You know. That was millions of acres of rangeland. So we, if we repair the, the riparian uh, corridors in those rangeland, you repair much of the rangeland and don't over it. So all those areas can be part of homegrown national park. Well, you know, the economics of farming is one of the things that's killing us. Um, I have a friend, Dave Coulter, and I hope he's watching. I don't know if he is, um, who, whose uh, mission in life is to promote hedgerows. Um, and because of all the biodiversity that used to be in hedgerows on farms, but now it's it's ditch to ditch uh, uh, and every single square foot of land that they can get because the economics are so bad for the average farmer. You have to do that just to make a living at it. And what we've done is we've killed off the biodiversity in the interest of getting a few more nickels out of the system. Well, you know, some of these these uh, restoration initiatives are actually uh, supported by uh, USDA CRP programs. So, if you put in a pollinator strip, you don't you don't lose income. That you need to do that. What uh, what is the CRP? Excuse me, Doug. What's the CRP program? Uh, conservation resource okay. program. I'm not conservation oh, programs. Okay. Yeah, it's, oh, it's an egg. Um, I don't think that the the um, I don't think growers should have to to fund the production of ecosystem services for everybody who lives in a city. That's that's not fair. I think we should all compensate uh, anybody who's donating land towards good good earth stewardship. I think we should have a, a pay per use fee. If you use the earth, you have to pay for it. It's just like Netflix, you know, you're not going to watch a movie for free. So $10 a year for everybody in the, on the, in the U S that would give us what three point something billion dollars a year. We could put towards conservation. Nobody would even notice us. one trip to Starbucks. Um, but rather than saying, well, you know, you're grower, you're going to have to give up your land and, and, uh, and put in these things for, for everybody else's sake. I well, think that's fair. Uh, CRP is a land conservation program administered by the Farm Service Agency. In exchange for a yearly rental payment, farmers enrolled in the program agree to remove environmentally sensitive land from agricultural production and plant species that will improve environment, health, and quality. Contracts for land enrolled in CRP are from 10 to 15 years in length. The long-term goal of the program is to reestablish valuable land cover to help improve water quality, prevent soil erosion, and reduce loss of wildlife habitat. So, uh, all of those go into it. Yeah. Um, So, your goal with Homegrown National Park is take every inch of land you can and make it work for our wildlife which means it's working for us. We're going to, we're going to make it productive, ecologically productive. We need it. Biodiversity needs it. Um, and there's no reason not to do it. Uh, our friend, uh, uh, Mac Austin, our, uh, uh senior, uh, amateur nature correspondent for the Mike Novak show with Peggy. One Mulligan. of the gnomes. Yeah. One of the gnomes. <laughs> she writes, Norway did the bumblebee highway through Oslo 
which was flower pots and window boxes throughout the city. Great. And, you know, and that's one of the things that, that I remember from years ago when we first talked, you, you, you were promoting corridors, the corridors. Mm -hmm. If if we can, if we can connect in any way, uh, these natural areas or even the, the the flower blocks in the city, right. That also benefits nature. Right. I, I don't like to use the word corridor anymore because it suggests it's just a place where plants and animals can move back and forth between viable habitats. Okay. I want to create everywhere. So, so they're going to, they're going to be able to live there. They're not going to have to run back to their, their home base. I want you, uh, would you say that and you want to create what? Viable habitats. Okay. It allows them to move back and forth between viable habitats. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, let's get before we uh, before we kick you out of here. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to uh, the issue that we brought up briefly, and there was an article in the New York Times uh, not very long ago, uh, March fourteenth, as a matter of fact. The headline was "Tree Planting is Booming." Here's how that could help or harm the planet. Uh, reforestation can fight climate change, uplift communities, and restore biodiversity. When done badly, though, it can speed extinctions and make nature less resilient. Um, and and what's interesting is the story starts in in a way that you and I were talking about uh, before the show, Doug. Uh, uh, a tree planted for every T-shirt purchased, for every bottle of wine, for every swipe of a credit card. Trees planted by countries to meet global pledges and by companies to bolster their sustainability records. And this is one of the trends here that, uh, yeah, I sign on to our wonderful not-for-profit and we're, we're helping kids or we're helping SEALs or we're helping somebody. Um, and, and we'll plant a tree uh, for every dollar we get or every $10 or $100 or, or whatever. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. How can that be bad, Doug? It can be bad if it's the wrong tree. We've got a tremendous opportunity here. There's the Trillion Tree Program. They want to put trees back. We've removed more than 50% of the forests on planet Earth. If we put them back, we'd grab up to 30% of the carbon out of the atmosphere to rebuild those forests. That's all great. But we've also lost, you know, we've lost two-thirds of our wildlife. Uh, we've got we've got a serious biodiversity crisis. If you choose the right species of trees when you're doing this, we can address both problems at the same time. I heard one of the trillion tree people the other day talking about putting polonia, which is the princess tree from China, in Africa. And the reason they do that is because it will grow there. I heard well, one of the trillion you know. tree people the other day talking about putting polonia. Oh, that's okay. Are we here? Yeah, we're we're good. Okay. Um, you know, what a terrible choice. It's a terrible choice for, for carbon sequestration, first of all, because it grows really quickly and dies really quickly and won't hold that carbon. But put native trees in, in Africa. Uh, in, in Portugal, the, the forests are dominated, and I mean really dominated, by eucalyptus from Australia. It's a good lumber tree, but, you know, there are other good lumber tree species, trees that will actually support local biodiversity. So choose your, your trees, uh, your species wisely, particularly if you're planting for, for climate change, and then you can help biodiversity at the same time. But a, a, a non-native tree, uh, 
if it's non-native, it doesn't belong there, and it's not going to support the biodiversity that that we need to support. And uh, that very article does talk about eucalyptus trees. Um, It says they grow fast and straight, making it a lucrative lumber product native to Australia and a few islands to the north. Its leaves feed koalas, which evolved to tolerate a potent poison they contain. But in Africa and South America, where the trees are widely grown for timber, fuel, and increasingly carbon storage, which is not a bad thing. Obviously, that's a good thing. Uh, They provide far less value to wildlife. They are also blamed for depleting water and worsening wildfires. They're also used in shade coffee. You know, you're told buy shade coffee because it's good for the birds. Well, not if it's shaded by eucalyptus. So, Mm. Uh, and this leads us to the or greenwashing. Of, well, greenwashing is a big part of it. It's, it's, uh, you know, as I mentioned, people, or, or the, the article mentions too, people want it on their resume. They say, well, we planted a million trees or uh, uh, 10,000 trees or, or whatever. And it makes them look good. And people say they're the good guys, but if they're doing it wrong, that it, it could or, be causing harm. Yeah. Or in places there shouldn't even be trees. Yeah, we're not going to use the Sahara Desert as a place to to put trees, and that's a no brainer. Except people talk about that. So, <laughs> well, and and um, as you and I uh, and men- and I mentioned uh, Kelsey Shaw from Possibility Place, he was talking to me about this because he he knows a couple of really reputable not for profits that um, are are, and I'm not going to name names here. Uh, I probably should, but uh, that are working with tree companies that are providing inferior products that um, are not going to survive uh, or might be the wrong trees in the wrong place. And how do people guard against something like that? I mean, if, you, if you're if you giving money to a not-for-profit, they're not going to tell you, or maybe they will tell you who their tree partner is. Maybe you need to write and say, who's your tree partner? Yeah, it's it's an important issue, um, particularly when they're giving away free trees. You say, well, this must be good, but it's where a little knowledge helps. Um, it's got to be a, a tree that is native to your area. It's got to be a tree that is non-invasive. I mean, I know programs that are giving away calorie pear, Bradford pear. Ah! It's giving away tuna. No! <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you know, it takes a little bit of, of knowledge on the, on the part of the, the public to say, well, that's not a tree that I want. Just because it's free doesn't make it good. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I can't yeah. believe we're still we're still planting calorie pears. Well, there's, there's all that invoice, uh, all that inventory. inventory of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they tell We've you. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was that, Doug? We've been complaining about inventory for decades. They keep planning them because they keep selling. That's that's the mm-hmm. problem. And that, they look pretty. You know, that's hard to educate the public. It's the public that keeps buying them. Well, it's because the public in in my neighborhood in Logan Square in Chicago in spring, there are calorie pairs everywhere, and people drive the boulevards and they go, "Oh, look at those beautiful flowers. Where yeah. can I get?" one of these yeah. and then they go to a garden center and they say here's how to get one instead of saying no don't plant that don't please don't yeah. plant that and that's where the disconnect is it's at some point yeah. if the the consumer wants it and it's bad for the planet you need to tell the consumer no we don't sell it because we think it's not a good choice well south carolina has now banned them 
Uh, and there are bounties on calorie pairs in other places, North Carolina and uh, St. Louis and Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you take out a calorie pair, they give you a free treat. Minneapolis too. So, uh, so yeah, this is this sometimes top-down regulation is necessary. Unfortunately. Right, right. Uh, you, you know, and and that uh, that's a really good point to end on. That yeah. It, you can legislate your way to a better planet. It doesn't always have to be the case. Wouldn't it be wonderful every, if everything was grassroots, came up from the bottom? But sometimes you do have to work your way down because people don't know. Unless they're educated, they're going to to fall for the trap of, of you know, even, even a lilac, which is a beautiful fragrance. And, uh, and, and people have had them for years in their gardens. It's not a native plant. And, and the, the good it's doing is for you personally as a human being uh, for uh, a couple of weeks each spring. Mm-hmm. But, but it's also not invasive, which is great. So it's, it's, a, it's a decoration for your yard. And you can have some decorations, but your yard should be dominated by those natives. Right. As you have said, the, and you're still studying this. I realize you're still studying this. The, the, the tipping point is about 70%. Is that right? 70% native. Yeah. yeah it will do the job. Uh, Doug Tallamy, thank you so much. It's what a pleasure it is having you on, on the show. And thank you for going with us in, in sort of odd directions. I've got one here too. There's our product placement uh, for, uh, I wish I had uh, your, your Rick Dark book uh, here. I don't, I don't have a copy of that. <laughs> what was that? It's too heavy to hold up. <laughs> and it's called <laughs> it's called the Living Landscape. I didn't mention it the last time we were on, but uh, you just need to go to Homegrown National Park into Talamy's Hub, uh, which is uh, uh, the page where all of this information is there. I've got the link at mikenovak.net in my blog post, um, and uh, we we look forward to the next time you're on the show with us. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, Peggy. Take care of yourself. Thank you. All right, you too. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. More to come. We're talking trees in Jackson Park in Chicago when we return. Victor, doing well. How about yourself? Doing well. Hey, I was noticing this, and I assume it's a mushroom, but can you tell me a little bit more about it? Yeah, it would be commonly referred to as a mushroom or a fungus. This is Ganoderma sessile, which is a type of primary decay fungus that we find in our landscape trees that have some level of decay present in them. Uh, And if you look closely at the top of the fungus there, it's got a shiny red, almost lacquered cap. And the genus Ganoderma, uh, the word comes from the Greek, meaning shiny skin, literally. And this genus of fungus, in particular the shiny cap varieties, are considered sacred in many parts of the world where they've been used medicinally for thousands of years and commonly referred to as reishi or lingji. And this is obviously the part of the call where I tell you, don't consume any fungus or mushroom without being 110% sure of the identity. A lot of mushrooms grow out of the ground. This one is growing out of the side of this chestnut oak. Can you tell me why? Yeah. 
there's a whole suite of fungi out there with a diverse array of functions. And you're right, some do grow out of the ground. But this one, Ganoderma sessile, is a decay fungus. And like other decay fungi, it possesses enzymes that'll break down cellulose and lignin. And wood gets its strength and rigidity from these structural sugars. So in the landscape, when we find decay fungi on trees, it indicates that there's some level of decay present. So this tree has decay in it. Does it, does it need to be removed? That's a great question, and it's really going to be a case-by-case -case basis. And we really need your Bartlett arborist to come out and inspect the tree. Because it's possible that this fungus is associated with an extensive amount of decay. But it's also possible that this tree has negligible amounts of decay associated with this fungus. And it's only in a small pocket. So now I know the next step. Dr. Lloyd, I want to thank you for your time. And also thank you for always being a resource for our arbors here at Bartlett Tree Experts. And my pleasure, Victor. Glad I can help. Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soupçon of humor. Or is that a dash? Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me and welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Just let you know that uh, Rick DeMaio, our meteorologist, will not be with us today. And uh, as we mentioned earlier in the program, we've been talking for several years uh, about this issue going on on the south side of Chicago. It's, it's a big deal here, maybe not to uh, people in other parts of the country, but well, I guess it is. Anytime you put up a presidential center, that is a, a, a pretty big deal. There has been controversy involving the siting of it, whether it should have been in Jackson Park. Um, the uh, it, it ended up being in Jackson Park, and the result is that a, a bunch of trees have been cut down in Jackson Park. Um, and I and as I posted, and I mentioned this earlier, as I posted on my uh, Facebook page, I think that when folks were for or even against the uh, the the uh, the location, the current location of the Obama Presidential Center, they might not have known just the extent of what was going to happen. I think there were many of us in the environmental community who had a sense of that. And who thought, yeah, no, we need to, to be careful about uh, what we're uh, asking for and what we're approving here. And I think a lot of people might not have known that. In the background of all of that was another issue, is was there going to be a, a, a golf course um, added or uh, was a golf course going to be created out of the two existing golf courses on the south side of Chicago in Jackson Park? There's Jackson Park Golf Course and there's South Shore Golf Course. I have played both, believe it or not, back in the day when I was a struggling actor and it was the only thing I could afford. And uh, our, our, my buddies and I would go to the south side and we would play Jackson Park and we would play South Shore. Um, and that's been one of the uh, advantages of going down there. It's very accessible, was very affordable. Uh, and now the idea is that the uh, Tiger Woods company might be redesigning those into one PGA caliber golf course, and that's going to have consequences as well. So 
with that said, and we'll explain more of this as we go along, let's introduce on the right side mm-hmm. of your screen at the bottom, Jeanette Hoyt. She uh, created Save Jackson Park, and uh, she's also executive director of CCAM Research Partners. Uh, she received her master's degree in public health from Chicago State University and has presented at DePaul University's Health Equity and Social Justice Conference on issues specific to Chicago South Side uh, and at MEC Global. Uh, David Nowak, and that's how you pronounce his last name. That's how he pronounces his last name. I say Novak. He says Nowak, uh, and he's no relation. Um, he's a, an emeritus senior scientist with the USDA Forest Service Northern Research Station in Syracuse, New York. His research investigates urban forest structure, health, and change, and its effect on human health and environmental quality. He's authored over 375 publications and led the development of the iTree software suite that quantifies the benefits and values from vegetation globally. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being on the program this morning. Uh, Jeanette, I want to start with you. You've started Save Jackson Park. Uh, what was what was the impetus for that, and what did you think you could accomplish? One thing quickly, protect our parks, the case that was kicked out, we had already moved on. They had already moved on. They have a new case up that was heard for oh, golly, about eight weeks ago, okay. and we're waiting for a ruling. So um, that the original judge from I, – I get mixed up in my appellate courts versus my circuit courts – um, but we're in a different, we're at already a higher level of court. And um, the judge had waited so long to rule on that case that we actually, that Protect Our Parks actually just filed a new case at the next higher level court up. That has not been ruled on yet. Uh, the impetus, I'm a resident of Chicago that did not know that this park was getting, or rather the Obama Presidential Center was going to be put in Jackson Park. I thought it was going to be by Washington Park. And I was teaching some students online and we were looking up things about tiny forests and I found a editorial by Charlotte Edelman saying what would happen to Jackson Park mm-hmm. and I was shocked. That was June 13th, 2021. I mean, how could I be so ill-informed? And then I realized most of Chicago was. If you knew it was going into Jackson Park, you didn't know how many trees were being cut down. If you didn't know it was going into Jackson Park and you thought it was going near adjacent to Washington Park, then you knew trees wouldn't be cut down. So there was a real, we've not talked about the trees being cut down in a public sense in any of our newspapers, except maybe in letters to the editor until the TGR design count came out through the FOIA request that CCAM Research Partners um, submitted to the Chicago Park District. You know, that's that's a really good point, and, and that's what I was alluding to. Um, if you had told people, okay, we'll put, the, um, we'll put the center in Jackson Park, but it's going to cost you 850 trees, all right? I wonder, and, and many of them mature trees. I'm wondering what folks would have said. And by the way, you mentioned that court case from uh, Save Our Parks. Um, it's, I'm kind of stunned that it's still in the court's and that the bulldozers are, are rolling anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you're shaking your head, Peggy, I think, because we've, we've had people on the show. We've had uh, Juanita Irizarry from Friends of the Parks, um, who, and her point all along was, I want the presidential center. I want it on the south side. I just don't want it in Jackson Park. 
and that's yes. that was my point. Uh, I, I feel the same way. Uh, that was the wrong place for it. Um, and you'll never get me to believe it was anything but a land grab. And there are people who will argue about that. But I think if you have enough power and you have enough money, you can get anything done in Chicago. That's the way we roll. Um, but and, I think, and that it's just moving on. It's in the courts, but it's just moving on anyways. Right, which is, is just well, kind, kind of amazing. It's being delayed. It shouldn't take what happened to um, there's a, a phrase about justice being in, in some sort of accordance of speed. It shouldn't take four months to rule on a case and meanwhile protect our parks. Actually mm-hmm. petition the Supreme Court of the United States twice, SCOTUS twice, right. seeing if they place an injunction in place to stop the trees from being cut down. Um, there's two things. Rahm Emanuel gave the Obama Foundation a 99 year lease for $10 on that parcel of Jackson Park. That's the first thing. Mm. The second thing is the buzz that we heard and we sort of, if you read into it, the Obama Presidential Center, when they put, excuse me, the Obama Foundation, when they submitted their last report to, I guess you'd call it the city of Chicago to show what sort of funding was in place because they had to raise a certain amount of money in order to put that thing there. Um, The taxpayer is, we're on the line for all the um, roadway improvements, which is going to be at least two and a half million dollars, if not more. Um, But they had to show that they could build and run the center for at least two years before they would be allowed to begin construction. And their donations were moving so slowly that the thought was, the buzz on the streets was that because Protect Our Parks had been still fighting this, that's why the Obama Foundation was having a hard time raising money. So the Obama Foundation moved ahead and started clear-cutting trees to show that they would have that portion of land because the injunction had also been lifted like about 14 days earlier. And that was a way to raise money. And if you time the cutting down of the, the raising of the injunction and the cutting down of the trees and the last donations, they all sink. Well, you know, even though there is still uh, there's still a court battle going on, it seems moot if uh, the trees are down. I mean, what else is going to happen in that space now? Well, yeah. there's more trees. Well, there's yes. Actually, yes, there's 564. No, wait, wait, wait. There's more trees on the Obama Foundation site. There's 564 more trees. So these could still be protected. I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused so about... Let me, explain, let me explain the advisory referendum question because that would explain, give you an answer. So that's why we fought to have this advisory referendum non-binding question placed on three precincts in Chicago, uh, Precinct 14, Precinct 19, and Precinct 37. All in the fifth ward. All on the outside. Yeah, all in the fifth ward. Right. All right. So Um, there's that. But anyways, shall the city of Chicago and the Chicago Park District stop cutting down trees? Stop cutting down the trees in Jackson Park. Meaning, okay, keep that. Keep your site for the Obama Foundation. Excuse me, Obama Presidential Center. Let's not close all these streets and cut down all these trees and try to expand Lakeshore Drive into Lake Michigan, for God's sakes, over 3.5 graded wetlands, which might not work so well. Let's stop now and take that land. And yeah, let's make an Obama Foundation uh, president to senator, but let's not continue this horror. We don't have to. All right. And so that that uh, non-binding referendum is going to be on the ballot 
in June. That is the primary ballot for the state of Illinois. It has nothing to do with aldermanic or mayoral elections, which come next year, uh, but it has to do with the state elections, which are this year. Uh, and so that question, and I've got it uh, right here because I, I put it in my blog so people know. The question is, shall the city of Chicago and the Chicago Park District stop cutting down trees in Jackson Park and preserve the trees in South Shore Cultural Center Park? Um, and that go uh, the residents of precincts 5, 14, 19, 34, or 35, all in the well, fifth ward. 14, 19, and 37. 37? 37. 30, okay. We grabbed South Shore right behind the shopping plaza at Jeffries at 71st Street by St. Philip Neri Church. If anybody from the South Shore is listening, you've got a chance to make your voice heard. All it's right. not just Hyde Park. So that's, that's, that's part one. Okay. Part, you know, that's just part one because there's, as we said, this, this is a, uh, this is a soap opera, uh, in progress here because we have it has a, so many tentacles. It does. And, and, and there's, you know, even, even the idea that the, uh, Obama foundation promised that the women's garden in Jackson park would be saved. And that was wiped, wiped clean. All right. There's this wonderful op-ed that was in, well, it's a sad op-ed in the Chicago Sun-Times from last year by Lyletta Robinson. Um, And she wrote, um, for those of us who live near Jackson Park and have become spoiled by its natural beauty, the loss was jarring. Every foundation stone from the 1893 World's Fair Women's Pavilion was removed. Every plant from the May McAdams design garden was ripped out. Every tree was cut down. When I pass the site now, I have to look away. It's it's just uh, the saddest. That is the cover photo on this week's blog. Is that garden? And so that's that's part of what, what was happening there. Then yeah yes that yeah that's it that's on our in fact. What's really sad about the photo you're showing right now is it looks like trees until you look and see, no, those are trees that are already cut down. I garden. was there that day. The birds yeah. were flying back and forth to the trees that were on the ground screaming. I'll bet. I'll bet they were. And, uh, and, and, and they, you know, and, it's, it's like there's the whole concept of putting in the center and then the reality that people didn't realize what's lost, the public. They did, not realizing they what was going to be lost. They didn't know that many trees were going to be cut down. Nobody knew that many trees were going to be cut down. We weren't told that many trees were going to be cut down. And, we just and, knew that that many trees were there. We didn't know they would be all cut. So people from the community, people from the surrounding communities were going to the construction site, praying that all the trees would not be cut down as this was going on. Mm-hmm. And, and I then, can't tell you. <laughs> and, all right. So, and as I say, that's that's part one. So, uh, part two is this idea that there will be this uh, PGA caliber golf course created out of the two golf courses that exist now in Jackson Park. Um, and 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 David, I will be getting to you in a second because we want to talk about the value of the trees and and, and the value of the tree surfaces that were lost here. Uh, but I want to get to. Uh, more of the uh, information that you sent 
to me, uh, Jeanette. And and so let's take a look at the uh, the area. This is Jackson Park Golf Course, and if you look at uh, you down a little bit more and get that last piece. Oh yeah, up, no, no, that, 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 that well. I can't do that. What I will do is I will have the next one. You'll see it in a second. Um, and this marks the young trees, seedling saplings are recently planted, developing, then the, the developing trees and mature trees, declining trees and deteriorating trees. And they, they're all marked by different colors here. And you can see there's a wide range of colors because not all the trees are in good shape. Now, if you look to the lower right, you'll see the start of the uh, South Shore uh, course. And that is this. All right, and here again, uh, this, so it's the same graphic. I wanted to put both up so you had a, could see all of it in a little more detail. Um, th- these are all the trees that are exist there now. Now, here is the list of, and, and these are both uh, areas. You can see how they're connected and will be connected there if this project goes through. Uh, and this, this is what the city, this this explain the uh the process for you getting these maps you sent a foia which is freedom of information act to the chicago park district jeanette and they sent you this um what what did you ask for and and what did you get in response oh okay that i didn't grab i i can do pretty much by memory i asked for anything showing um the cutting down or the destruction of trees in Jackson Park, or for, or I just said for Jackson Park, actually, and I got lucky. I got South Shore Nature Sanctuary, which is South Shore Cultural Park, um, in regards to building of the TGR design golf course. All right. And these are what uh, the city, we were talking about this the other day, what is a, a mature tree versus a heritage tree. That uh, heritage, uh, I, in looking at the documents further, um, it's actually the uh, uh, park district that refers to some of these as heritage trees. Um, and let's look now look at the trees that they plan to remove. And these are uh, the dark red ones are heritage trees that they call heritage trees, which are mature trees. Uh, and there is a definition of them, which I will, I will get in a second. Um, yeah. And by the way, for, for listeners, this is for the golf course. Now yeah, well, one, this is the these are the two existing golf courses, the one uh, that goes um, east to west and one that goes basically north to south. Uh, and they this would is at least 200, excuse me, the original golf course, did you know how large, when you were at Jackson Park playing on both of those golf courses, did you know how large that was? The how first lar- hole, it was huge. So, you know, Jackson Park is about 600 acres, but the golf course is like half a this is this is like two three hundred acres <laughs> it's going to be deforested yeah well and, and this is not including the obama presidential center which is an additional 40 plus acres right right well you can look at the actual numbers here here are the tree numbers that in the document that you foia'd and that the park district sent to you now they claim it's a draft um and um whether it is or not they have real numbers here uh, if you look in the center, the the red area, remove park total comes to twenty one hundred six trees uh, to be removed. 
uh, and, and what they call heritage trees, existing non-heritage, um, whether you call them mature or heritage is... is well, the heritage is a term that they're using basically for trees 25. It, for oak trees, it's over 25 inches. For other trees, it's over 30 inches in diameter right. at breast height. Exactly. So you're still talking about a fairly decent-sized tree, but it's like, and it will grow up to be a heritage tree if you would let it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and, and, and you're right. That's how they define them. Um, and um, it says that... Uh, in, in the document they sent you, heritage trees uh, within the park have been defined as any trees with a trunk diameter greater than 30 inches, oak species with a trunk diameter of approximately 23 inches or greater, and ash species with a trunk diameter greater than 20 inches that are not showing signs of emerald ash borer infestation. Uh, wow. this, this, so, they, so they survived emerald ash and now... Right. This. this definition is currently being used for the current federal review process for improvements, uh, what they call improvements. I love the way they use that phrase. In Jackson Park, the tree survey conducted for the golf project identified 362 heritage trees in Jackson Park golf course with an additional 163 trees at the South Shore Cultural Center. So uh, there you have it. This is, is what we're looking at, the potential removal of trees in addition to the trees that have already been removed for the Obama presidential center. So and let's see, we're, we're removing 2,106 and leaving 1,200. Well, and if you add the trees that have been removed from the center, uh, Obama center, we're, we're close to uh, 3,000 trees total being removed. 106 plus 865. All 206 right. plus so at this point, uh, I want to bring in our, our tree guy, um, uh, D David Nowak. Uh, Nowak, sorry, um, it, it's hard for me to get used to that. Um, and uh, tell me a little bit, uh, very quickly, about the work you do. But then I want you to explain what the loss of this kind of canopy, the loss of this kind of the tree services that uh, three thousand trees would provide in an urban area can do. Um, in in any given metropolitan area. All right. Thanks, Mike. So I, I just retired from the Forest Service, but my career has been working on to assess what are urban forests across the world, so trees in Chicago, trees in any city, and what are the values they provide. And we've been working on a tool called iTree, which is a free set of tools that allow people to assess their own local forest. So that's most of my career has been trying to understand the value that trees and cities provide for the, for the local residents. Listening to what you're talking about, this is not uncommon, the loss of tree cover. Nationwide, we have dropped from 40.4% to 39.4%, 1% loss over a five-year period. Uh, so we're losing, country, uh, losing tree cover nationally. Chicago from in 2005 was 18.5% tree cover. In 2009, it was down to 18%. So the city of Chicago is losing tree cover. Globally, we're losing tree cover within cities. And at the same time, we're enhancing impervious cover. So we're, having, we're changing our, our urban environment. And this affects how many trees we have, but also the values provided by trees. So what we've been looking at is what values do trees provide for residents around the area? And there are multiple benefits. So at the local scale, talking about Jackson Park and, and the, the Obama Center, time loss of trees, most of that effect will be felt locally. Some of it 
will be a fact like with climate change globally in terms of carbon sequestration. But probably some of the biggest effects you'll feel locally will be changes in air temperatures because trees evaporate a lot of water. They shade surfaces and temperature drives energy use. It drives human health. So the impact locally could be fairly significant in terms of air temperatures. Air pollution is another one. Uh, the thing about urban forest is it's not necessarily about the tree unit itself. It's about the size of the tree and the amount of leaves that the trees put out. Because that's the basically the factory, if you will, the solar-powered factories that exchange gases, evaporate water. So they, as they're exchanging gases, they remove pollution and they cool the air. So you're going to lose air pollution removal capacities due to the loss of that leaf surface area. And you were talking about heritage trees. So large trees over 30 inches produce about 60 to 70 times more leaf surface area than a small tree less than three inches. So one tree does not equal one tree. And these large trees are fairly significant in the environment. But the, the forest itself produces multiple benefits. And you have to make that decision. If you're going to take the forest out, obviously there's a reason to do that. In return, what are you giving up? So you're giving up air temperature cooling giving up pollution removal, you're giving up carbon sequestration, all that carbon that's taken by those trees has to go somewhere now. Are you gonna put it in wood products? Or are you just gonna burn it or chip it and accelerate that decomposition and put that carbon back to the atmosphere? The water cycle is going to change in that area because now the trees were uh, intercepting water and evaporating water and allowing the water to infiltrate into the soils. If you're putting more impervious surfaces down or not allowing that water to infiltrate into the soils, you're gonna have issues with water runoff and water quality. Um, UV radiation, tree leaves absorb 96% of ultraviolet radiation. So the capacity of those that shading is going to be lost and therefore increases in ultraviolet radiations in the neighborhood around those where the trees were, which leads uh, to skin cancer and cataract, other health effects. Um, there's a whole host. We're talking, I mean, you had Doug telling me on earlier that wildlife capacity, wildlife habitat is going to change with the loss of those trees, changes in noise right. in terms of how Right in the migration absorbed. path. Yeah, um, noise will change. Hopefully when they cut those trees down, what do they do with them? Do you, do, there's a chance to utilize it for wood products and, and at least reduce that uh, or, um, decomposition of the wood. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the, what you get is multiple benefits that are gonna be changed in that area. And one, and one of the biggest ones is gonna be the social environment. Just the viewing of it and people appreciate aesthetics of the forest itself, but. People also, it affects their brainwave, their body and human health. Brainwave patterns change, cortisol levels change when you view in and around vegetation. So there's multiple facets of the forest are going to change. Uh, I'm wondering, Jeanette, did, uh, did anybody ask what would happen to those trees uh, once they were cut down? I imagine it happened so suddenly. I mean, you, you bring up a really good point, David, which is that uh, let's hope that that didn't, provide pump more even more carbon into our our atmosphere and was there any good local use that uh, i assume that they're they're shredded and and mulch is being created out of well, we really don't know do we we have an idea they chose several trees that they were going to use to make park benches out of okay. and then the other trees we watched carefully as they loaded them up on big skiffs with the full trunk intact and considering the nature of the lumber and the age of the lumber, we're assuming it was sold. Probably, yeah. I wish yeah. it was that's our road construction connected with this process rather than coming from the taxpayers' pockets. 
Well, you were saying if you David, utilize the wood. I'm sorry. If you utilize the wood, therefore you're locking that carbon into the wood products, but also you're preventing using the product for a useful purpose, and therefore not having to cut other trees to provide the wood for the benches or whatever you're going to do. And I want to go back to the statement you made about replacing trees. Um, it's something we hear all the time, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is, uh, you know, trees are a renewable resource. This is what folks like to tell you, and they are, in that you can remove a tree and plant another tree or more trees. Uh, the problem is, as you just mentioned, David, the, the benefit from that doesn't come right away. Yeah, it takes years for the trees to go from that very small tree in it to, to the very large trees, maybe 50 to 100 years or more, and there's no guarantee it's going to make it. There's a high mortality yeah. rate when the trees are planted, a relatively high mortality rate, till the trees become established and the mortality rate drops until they get old again and the mortality rate goes back up. So just because you plant a tree doesn't guarantee the tree's going to be there five or 10 years from now unless there's good care taken and the right trees are planted for mm -hmm. those locations. So, and the, these trees, nationally, the, the, the trees in our country were about 3.6% urbanized with about 30 or 39% tree cover produce billions of dollars of value. At minimum, we've quantified at least $18 billion annually. In Chicago, uh, we estimate that the value is at least over $20 million per year for the forest in Chicago, which is only about 18% tree cover. So at the local scale, obviously it's going to be less than that, but there is value provided in terms of improved human health, reduced energy use because of cooler temperatures, um, carbon that's being sequestered. So these values are... Uh, not only to the humans themselves, but also they have monetary values that apply to the society. Yeah. One of the things yeah. I, w I want to mention I, is that... Go ahead, Peggy. No, you, you might be mentioning what I was just going to ask you to, to well, give a I, couple details about the survey. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to mention that the there was a survey uh, of, the, of the trees in the footprint of the uh, Obama Presidential Center was done by... Here, here, Bartlett Tree Experts, uh, who is the, our, our primary sponsor on this show. Um, and I actually talked to one of the guys whose name was on that uh, survey. I talked to him the other day, and we chatted about this a little bit. And I said, I, you know, I, I read your survey. Uh, Eric Grossnickel is, uh, is, and he's a, um, a, a manager in the Chicago office for Bartlett Tree Experts. And they identified hundreds of trees in in um the uh, uh the footprint there and um i said uh it it seems your 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 report did not issue any recommendations except if a tree was it was standard recommendations basically it was if a tree is is not doing well here's how you can improve it here's the pruning you should do here's the uh uh root aeration you might want to do in it here's he, these are trees uh, we might suggest uh, for removal um and uh it seems as if the tree the the city said great great report and it was it's a very it's a 197 page report and it's very thorough, and it, and it documents all the species and all each tree. He said, actually, it was interesting. He said they were not allowed to tag the trees. Um, and uh, he said that made it even harder because we had to come back and, and identify the location and figure out where we're going uh, and, and, and how do I – and it seems to me one of the reasons they – I don't know why they didn't want them tagged, but it just made the job harder. And then the, the, uh, the foundation said, okay, thanks for that, and whoop just cleared it 
Um, and so it made, made, made me wonder, why do the survey in the first place if you're not going to save any of these trees? Now, they may save some of them. I don't know. But at this point, you're shaking your head, Jeanette. You don't uh, anticipate There's that. There's 40 trees left by the Jackson Park Field House. Um, a photographer uh, with um, Hyde Park Herald on the day that the tree cutting started said, uh, shortly before, said the Obama, Mr. and Mr. President Obama and Mrs. Obama came through and they decided at the last minute to save two of the oldest trees. That's it. Um, so the reason I have an answer for you, probably why the tree study was done, because there's federal funds coming into this site too. In order to qualify for federal funding, you have to have a tree survey. Yeah, it seemed to me it would be something like that. So the Bartlett survey estimated uh, that those trees in that footprint, and this this does not include the the golf courses and the proposed PGA caliber golf course uh, from the Tiger Woods people, uh, but Bartlett estimated that the trees that they surveyed stored 203.8 tons of carbon, sequestered 5.8 tons of carbon per year, uh, removed... 341.5 pounds of air pollution per year had uh, an air pollution removal value of $946 per year, which seems low to me, but uh, and had an avoided runoff amount of 9,591 cubic feet per year, an avoided runoff value of $641 per year. Um, that's just those trees there. Um, and, and it's amazing that they they could come up with that kind of specific number, uh, David. Yeah, they, they probably use the iTree model that we developed, but basically it brings in the local tree data that you have with your local environmental data. So your pollution concentration information, your weather system, and we simulate what the values of those trees are based on um, the environment and the number of people around that region. Yeah. So it's an issue of scale. I mean, the, the, the trees themselves, you're probably talking per acre of cover, maybe a thousand or dollars more per year that you're getting in benefits that's per acre but as you know as you go down to a tree scale it, obviously that those values diminish and and that's only for the ones that we can quantify a dollar value for which is pollution um carbon water mm -hmm. and energy savings now all the other ones such as aesthetics and other relations to human health we can't quantify it we're not there. So it's a conservative estimate on the value. So you may say it's low, but it's, it's reasonable for what we understand about the force or what, at least what we can quantify. I yeah. Mean, the key about when you, yeah. sorry, the key about when you do a landscape change, you have to look at, at the inventory is great. You have to start with an inventory. You don't have the inventory. You don't know what the forest is functions. You don't know its values, but the idea is you're making a decision in space. The landscape has a value and we can value it for, in economic terms where we're conservative or in social terms. I mean, people just like whether they like it. It's, it's a local decision. And on the other side, you got to weigh what's, if you lose that force, what are you gaining in return? And that's why it's a local decision. In each case, it's a little bit different in the decision, but you have to understand that nature is not a vacant lot. And these trees are not basically doing nothing. They have a value that's producing benefits for health and, and the environment around that park. doesn't mean you can't cut them down, but at least you should take the time to think about, and I'm not saying they didn't do that, but think about the decision you want to make and what you're giving up in terms of what you're gaining, because the val there is value to those trees. Right. And, yeah. and and if I can pop in here, Scott Jamison from Bartlett says, yes, they did use the iTree tool. 
Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so uh, one other thing we haven't even mentioned is if the golf course is built in the way that it might be planned, we don't know what the final plans are. And um, transparency is always an issue in these kinds of negotiations. Uh, it would wipe out the South Shore Nature Sanctuary. Um, and there are, you're not the only group, Jeanette, uh, Save Jackson Park is not the only group fighting here. There, there's got to be a dozen groups that um, are fighting, whether in the courts or in the, uh, the court of public opinion, um, on, on, on various social media. There's a Save Our Sanctuary uh, is tweeting out there and, and getting uh, some viral posts up, uh, including information that came from you, Jeanette, in the FOIA you, you yeah. sent out. Um, and that's to save the sanctuary in addition to the trees. Right, because the sanctuary – and the reason the sanctuary is being targeted because it's on a, a, a point that juts out into Lake Michigan. and it looks it great would, on TV. It, you know, with the golf shot on the tee there, that's why that's being targeted. Um, and it would uh, just remove that. And that was uh, – a, uh, a sanctuary that was not created uh, that terribly long ago, back, uh, you know, at the turn of this century. 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's, um, what do we do next? Obviously, you've got the uh, uh, the referendum, but that's non-binding. Obviously, you're going to keep uh, moving together. I, I, I'm hoping that some of these organizations can get their work done uh, en masse work uh, as a team to, uh, to to talk about this. But obviously there has to be a lot more discussion and a lot more public input, Jeanette. I hate to say this. When you say, what can we do? This process has taught me I don't have a voice in terms of what my government is doing with my taxpayer dollars. And not only do I not have a voice, apparently I don't have a need to know. Okay? So all I can think of to do is tell everybody I know, right, every person who might be interested in this that I know and hope that somehow public pressure born of shows like yours, Mike, and and, and, and public pressure born of other news outlets will create some sort of catalyst for action because we don't have anything we can do. It's our taxpayer dollars. It's our public park. And I have learned we have no say about it. And that's a sad commentary. Um, and I've, we've seen this uh, before in, in other uh, issues. Uh, for instance, uh, Save Belbo Prairie and um, uh, other issues in, the, uh, in, in Chicago uh, where the lack of transparency um, just cripples uh, the uh, public's ability to weigh in on this. So... Um, I, we're going to keep track of this. Uh, Jeanette, thank you so much for being here. David, uh, wonderful explanation of the value of those trees. Um, we're we're going to keep you guys both in the Rolodex because uh, this is far from over. Obviously, um, I don't think, I think now that people see that maybe 20, you know, they can see what it's like to have close to 800 trees removed, possibly more. And the thought that another 2,100 trees might come down in that general area, that's just transforms that neighborhood. Frame? What's the time frame? Is that like 
we could they you know, just nobody will tell us for a year. Nobody will tell us. We go out there and we look at the tags on the trees, we look at the construction equipment, and we don't know. We never know. Nobody tells us. So it could start happening. You see, if it happens sooner, then we can't fight for the trees, right? How many cuts? A thousand cuts or one great big one? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, David Novak, uh, sorry, Nowak. Nowak. <laughs> And Jeanette Hoyt, thank you both so very much. Um, we will be in touch. All right. Thanks, Mike and Peggy. All right. Uh, it's you. the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're going to wrap up when we come back. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. Our Great Lakes are the pride and joy of every Michigander, as well as an economic powerhouse that supports more than 1.3 million jobs. We all have our own Lake Michigan story, right? Uh, what, these, what these waters mean to us, what this land means to us. Threatened by a decrepit, ticking time bomb and bridge line five that is older than I am, and I am qualified for Social Security. Line five flows through the whole state, and if the pipeline breaks in the straits, or anywhere along its 645 miles, we will have a disaster. Enbridge caused the biggest inland oil spill in history. A spill that, according to DOJ records, went unnoticed by Enbridge for 17 hours. That Enbridge oil spill happened in July of 2010. They have a track record of lies, shoddy maintenance, and the catastrophic rupture of Line 6B following the Kalamazoo River near Marshall that is still not and never will be remediated in my lifetime. If you walk along the Kalamazoo River miles from the accident, you will see the sheen of oil on the water. And that's today, right now. Oil and water do not mix. So we're asking, you jack this short-sighted tunnel. We need to shut down Line 5. Boy, uh, talk about uh, interesting stuff that uh, Jeanette yeah. and uh, David had to uh, present to us. Uh, you just got a text from Skeet, who was uh, pretty impressed by it, although not by the bird. Um, but <laughs> but you hey. know what? Like, I'm the one who says, hey, bring your birds, bring your pets. Yep, bird uh, was chiming in. The bird was part of the discussion. Uh, so a few things going on. Uh, first of all, as we mentioned before, no Rick DeMaio today. Uh, we're off. The show is off next week. Um, not necessarily for Easter, um, just because we need a break. And it's usually harder getting guests on Easter. Well, and uh, it gives everyone a chance who next Sunday morning might be doing things to not miss the show. Hunting Easter eggs, right? You know, the rabbit lays the Easter egg and then... The kids, kids find it and test it to see if it's chocolate. I'm doing my Scooby Doo, huh? Ooh, ooh. Um, do your. Uh, we've had a request for you to do your goat. Come on, do your goat. No. Just, just why not? No. I don't All right. 
the go down call. <laughs> uh, yes, you do. Surprise. Well, what you, you you worried about your dignity? Look at the show you're on already. Yeah. Come on. All right. Well, I just cut yep. your mic. See, I could just cut the mic just like that. Okay. <laughs> There's no goat. Come on. We've had requests. We've had requests from no, our, no, our no. why won't you do it? Because I have to practice. <laughs> no, you don't. You just, I'm, I'm nope. I don't ever another, practice another Jimmy week. Stewart when I go into Jimmy Stewart. So, ah. uh, so anyway, we're oh. not on next week, but unfortunately, um, Earth Day is the following Friday. And, uh, so, um, we're going to wish you right now, happy Earth Day. Obviously, we uh-huh. won't be doing any particular segment on Earth Day because we won't be here. Um, but we do want you to know well, that we they're... might pop up live on Facebook. You never know. But um, yeah, we might do something or <laughs> maybe you will. Uh, I don't know. Well, but... there's there's an event happening. Um, we were we were alerted to if I can talk about that one. Yeah, go for we've it. had. Uh, Julian Hoffman on the show, um, talking about Irreplaceable, his book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places. And he Who we need to have back. Group. We need to get him back mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to that Natural Awakenings article, um, he was also interviewed in that piece. Anyways, he, on April 22nd at noon, he's going to be um, in a special Go Green Reads event, a virtual event, along with the bookstall. Um, which is an independent bookseller in Wilmette. Um, he's going to be talking about Irreplaceable, the fight to save our wild places, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be a live interaction. Uh, you know, he'll be talking in Q&A. So this is April 22nd at noon. Celebrate Earth Day with author Julian Hoffman. I will. I can put the link on Facebook. Unfortunately, I can't put it anywhere else due to the problems we're having with Restream this morning. So it is on Facebook. What are we having with Restream? Did it, uh, oh, I had texted you about that. Yes, it oh, is not working. I thought so. It seemed to stop after the... Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's so totally if, locked up. Um, I've tried to reload it multiple times. It could have something to do with the bot that was hitting it. So, And apologies to our viewers. Um, there is a bot that I think we got rid of. But Oh, Lordy. See, I didn't see any of that uh, here. And, and uh, if we haven't been responding to you on restream or um i've been responding directly on facebook but i'm i it's hard to be responding on youtube so this is just uh well we got to talk to the restream people um and uh and uh that's why we haven't uh we kind of stopped reading the comments because they just stopped coming in yeah stopped right after right after doug telling me yeah so uh, I want to tell you about a couple of uh, composting events um, on Saturday, April 16th. Um, one of them is at Garfield Park Conservatory. That's uh, at 300 North Central Park Avenue in the South Parking Lot uh, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's uh, Illinois Extension is behind this. You can uh, drop off kitchen waste to be composted and pick up a bucket of finished compost. Please bring your own bucket. Um, finished. Well, <laughs> they're not going to supply the buckets. Uh, well, just, see, that's the new meaning of BYOB. <laughs> put out your hands like this and we'll, we'll drop compost. In no, just, just like use, use the bottom of your t-shirt here, put it here. I know. And that's what they say. It's a BYOB. Bring your own BYOB. bucket. BYOB. 
Finished compost is first come, first served. Um, you can also win a grow bag or bed, pick up a free plant start do- donated by Gotham Greens. Learn more about how to compost at home. See a worm bin in action and talk to an Illinois Extension Master Gardener or Compost Ambassador. Um, so there's there's that one. That is, again, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Garfield Park Conservatory. Then there's one at Plant Chicago the same day. That's on the south side uh, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, and that's at 4459 South Marshfield in Chicago. And it's pretty much the same deal, also by uh, Illinois Extension. Uh, drop off a kitchen waste to be composted and pick up a bucket of finished compost, BYOB. Um, hey. And all the other stuff, the grow bag, the free pick up free plant starts, and uh, or native tree provided by the Morton Arboretum Chicago Trees Initiative. So, mm-hmm. and, and you can purchase right. locally grown and made products, visit Plant Chicago's indoor and outdoor gardens, learn more about how to compost, and as we mentioned before, see a worm bin in action. Ooh. And then on April, you don't have this one, but on April 23rd, Friends of the Parks is coordinating um, Chicago Earth Day cleanups across the city the city in, and uh, near in. Um, but it's annual Earth Day Parks and Preserve Celebration and Cleanup for more than 30 years. Uh, Friends of the Parks has, support, has supported park advisory councils and other portions of the Chicago Park District. Um, there's an online event sign up. If you go to earthdaychicago.org, that's on the Saturday. And this year's theme is Invest in Our Parks, Preserves Planet. All right. And uh, there is a meeting, uh, Save Bell Bull Prairie public meeting this Tuesday, the 12th of April uh, from 6 p.m. to 7. I saw one place to 7.30, but... Uh, uh, at any rate, it starts uh, at 6 p.m., but this says 7 p.m. on the website. The yeah. I saw the invite come in um, from but any, any, It's a Zoom meeting, um, and I, anybody's welcome uh, to yeah, get it up. She's got 6 p.m. to 7.30. Right, and on the website, it says 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. So, you know, show up at 6. Um, and uh, yeah. it's just a public meeting. It's an informational yeah. meeting. Um, to uh, keep you apprised of, of what the status is. Uh, and basically, it's um, on hold right now until mm-hmm. uh, on uh, April 15th, though. They, they, see, they've got a couple of other events. So three days later, there's a Bumblebee Homecoming and Prairie Watch Party. Um, it says, Rusty Patch Bumblebee Queens are emerging. Join us. At the intersection of Beltline Road and Cessna Drive to celebrate the beginning of foraging season for our endangered bumblebee, we will use this as an opportunity to monitor the prairie and photograph any birds and wildlife present. Fun activities and learning opportunities will be included. So it sounds to me, and I haven't talked to them, sounds to me like they're going to have access to the prairie on the uh, 15th of April. That's Friday from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. I might have to head on out there just to see what's going yeah. on. And, and see what's going on. Bring, bring, bring your your phone camera and check it out. I'm 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 yeah. kind of surprised at that uh, that that 
yeah. is the case. But then I haven't heard from the folks for a while. I, I haven't paid as close attention as mm-hmm. I probably should have. And then finally, on the 23rd, of, which is Saturday, the 23rd, Pollinator Palooza joined Prairie Advocates at uh, Severson Dell Nature Center Celebration of Pollinators. Uh, it's a family event, and uh, you can find about all of these by going to savebellbowlprairie.org. There's a, a lot of things happening in the various forest preserves as well. I'm reading the handy-dandy calendar in the back of Natural Awakening Chicago. All right. Um, the various forest preserves have events, so check them out. Check out their websites. And also um, Wharton Arboretum. I don't know if registration is still open. It's the Champion of Trees 10K run on April 23rd. All right. With that said, I want to thank uh, everybody who was on the show today, uh, including Doug Tallamy, who is just the best. Um, Really appreciate his uh, showing up and grab a copy of uh, one of his books if you can. Uh, Looks like uh, The Nature of Oaks is uh, going strong. Uh, Also want to thank Jeanette Hoyt, from Save Jackson Park, David Nowak from uh, the USDA Forest Service. Our thanks to Kathleen. Our thanks to Lagata the cat and Basil the dog. Uh, and all of you viewers, sorry about the problems on Restream. Until next time, go green or go home. Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. 